You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick old trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program will be podcast the next 24 hours. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano. Uh, Kelly Whitworth is doing all the production work. Uh, she's the uh, Clydesdale who does all the work, and I'm the show pony. That's the way it goes. And uh, our guest is the unicorn. And uh, our guest today is uh, Andre Lou. Hello, Andre. How are you, Joe? Pleasure to be back on my, one of my favourite radio shows. Uh, you know, radio, um, I'm tired for words, but one, one of the best uh, radio stations uh, in the world. I yeah. love 3CR because what you started back in the 70s. Uh, well, Andre, flattery will get you everywhere on this program. We won't be able to send you any money because, as you know, 3CR runs smell of an oily rag, but we will accept all those bouquets. Now, Andre, this is a simple chat for about 56 minutes. I ask the questions, you answer them. It's like being in a police station. You understand that? Yeah, yeah, good. Been there. Yeah, I know, I know, I know the drill. If you were in around in the, when I was, you know the drill very well. Now, Andre, this is interesting, interesting name, Andre Lou. Is it L-E-U? L-E-U. Yeah, actually, L-E-U is actually pronounced Loy, like oh. Freud or Reuters, mm. and it's the old German word for Leo, the lion. Mm. Instead of being L-E-O, it's L-E-U in German. Mm. So really, my name means lion. Mm. Well, I had, a, I had a Macedonian guest a few months ago, and his name meant lion too, <laughs> so, which is interesting. Now, Andre, just to orientate our listeners, what year were you born? Uh, 1953. Oh, you're a youngster compared to me. You're a youngster. Oh, okay. I was born okay. in 51. Glad to hear that. <laughs> I was born in 51. <laughs> Although we'd have, okay. we'd have many of the same formative experiences. Were you born in Australia or overseas? I, I was born in Adelaide. And um, uh, the first five years of my life there, and then um, we moved to Sydney. So my school years and formative years were, were really in Sydney. Right. But I have lived in Melbourne as well. Right now, 
quite a few times. Your first five years in Adelaide, uh, any recollections? Oh, yeah, I can remember Adelaide very well, and uh, particularly the house we grew up in because we had a huge garden of fruit trees and lots of chooks out the back, and also uh, on my mother's side, we had the family had a wheat sheep farm in north of Adelaide in, near Alfred, and I always remember that. And also my grandfather... When he retired, his idea of retiring was having an acre of fruit trees. So these are things that just really were part of my formative, um, you know, formed me in life and and the reason why I ended up becoming a farmer. Right. Now you're saying that uh, the the name is uh, German. So were your uh, parents... Yeah, were your parents part of that uh, group that came across in the early 1840s and 50s, the German farmers? Uh, no, actually uh, on two sides. On my mother's side, they came out in the 1850s to South Australia and they became um, wheat sheep farmers in South Australia. But my mother um, met my father in Europe just after the war and actually in North Africa to tell you the truth, they got married in Europe, and then they lived in Paris for many years while my father went to the Sorbonne University, and that's how I got the name Andre. And then what happened was that uh, my mother loved Paris because they just loved that whole Paris just after the war, the left bank being radicals, but she wanted to show off a new husband to her parents, so they took the boat out to Australia <laughs> and it's my father who fell in love with Australia and I only ever went back once and that was for his father's funeral. Right. So I, I was born here and grew up here. So, so where did your father originate from? From Zurich in Switzerland. Right. So, yeah. so I, I had a, well, to a degree, the combination of one side of my family were, um, you know, old established Australians and the other side was the you know the new Australian um, from the 1950s so that was to me was a really interesting upbringing to get both right and was English the dominant language when you were a child in Adelaide uh, yeah ironically um, in the beginning actually uh, my father couldn't speak English, my mother couldn't speak German, so their language was French. And so French was actually the main language of the house, and actually what I spoke um, until my father learned English, and then it became the dominant language. And also, given the times, um, and my father having, you know, Swiss German, you know, in those days people didn't know the difference between Swiss German and German, and all things German just after the war weren't good. Mm. So my father really want, didn't want us to speak um, his language, German, or Swiss German, and wanted us to be good Australians. So like so many people of my age, we just spoke English and lost a lot of our um, European cultural heritage mm. Um, mm. at the time. There's a lot of us like that that we don't now speak our, our parents' language, even though we started off doing it. 
Yes, look, are you telling people my story, are you, about the fruit trees, the farm, the non-English speaking uh, childhood? I was, uh, I was, although I was born in this country, I was born in Brisbane, I didn't speak my first word of English till I went to school at the age of five. That's how insular things were in those days. So, why did you... Why Can did... I tell you a little story yeah, like sure. that? Yeah, no, sure. Similar thing with me. Uh, when I first went to school, my first primary school, my first teacher was in France. Uh-huh. And so every day my father would give me a little um, joke, insult, to tell her in French. <laughs> first thing in the morning, I'd, I would um, you know, just say something like, Fermez la bouche, or something like that. Um, you know, and then she would then give an equally witty, you know, retort to me to give back to my father. So every day we'd have this little um, play in French between um, my teacher and my father through me. And and the irony is by the time I got to high school, I failed French. Did you? Uh, uh, did you have any siblings? You got any siblings? Yeah, or? I've got. I've got a brother, a younger brother, two yeah. years younger. He still lives in Sydney, and he's a geologist. A geologist, right? So, why did the family uproot what seemed to be an idyllic life in Adelaide and uh, move? Oh, okay. My father um, was actually working for Chrysler. Uh, he's a, he's a car engineer. And then he got a job with BMC British Motor Corporation, so um, moved over to Sydney for that because that was in those days a promotion, and that that was in the, uh, 1958. Right. And and I remember he, he big big a huge amount of money, forty pounds a week, which is good money then. It was because the average wage was about seven and a half pounds. In those days, because I remember that's what my father used to earn working as a, uh, he used to work as a lumper. You know what a lumper is, Andre? No. No, it's a, it's a dead occupation. Uh, Mechanisation has destroyed it. You'd get all these immigrants, because he was an immigrant from uh, Sicily, you'd get all these immigrants turn up at the docks and they'd be human horses. They would go up to the uh, ship, they'd have a hundred, you know, fifty kilo bag of wheat or whatever on their shoulders and take it up to the ship. So that was their job. They were called lumpers. And if you ever have the uh, joy of going to the Waterside Workers Union uh, headquarters in um, in uh, Island Street in uh, West Melbourne, they've actually got a huge banner, the Lumpers Workers Union. <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is they've all now been mechanised out of a jobs, not just the lumpers. Yeah. <laughs> so what, yeah, what did you feel? How did you get to Sydney? Did you fly or drive? Uh, I flew, actually. Um, my first plane flight, 1958, via Melbourne. Or, and never forgot it because I wanted to um, get myself a piece of cloud. Uh, actually, oh. my father, when he first went over Sydney, and I asked him to get me a piece of cloud, and I was really disappointed when he um, got back and I didn't have a piece of cloud waiting for me. And so he said, look, when you fly over, you'll understand why I couldn't get you the cloud. And so when I was on the aeroplane, and I was just so upset I couldn't open the window to get myself up a piece of, piece of cloud. So I never, ne- never forgot that flight. Yes. 
And uh, did, you, did you move into a, a dreary little home in uh, Sydney after your uh, farming experience? Or? Uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah. And I always remember the first one is actually in a, in, you know, a little industrial suburb, a really small little worker's cottage. And I, was, I always remember being really unhappy there. But later on, we moved um, to... Um, the North Shore and into a, a really nice double block, you know, um, surrounded by really high-quality forest, um, a whole forest reserve, um, mm. acres and acres and acres of it. Mm. And that was really formative for me. My brother and I, we, we spent hours in there playing in there, catching snakes and lizards and having menageries of animals. And it was also, I suppose, another formative experience in why uh, I've been actively involved in conservation and uh, particularly of ecosystems. Mm. Let's let's go back, let's go back, will you? Got plenty of time, Andre, plenty of time I say to people. Everybody's got a, a drum to beat, but we're here to learn about you. Now, um, when you... Um, obviously your father must have done well. He must have become the chief automotive engineer to move to the North Shore... Um, well, actually, he, instead of becoming, he was actually a, one of the chief designers. Mm. What, what he did, um, his role was in charge of the design teams, the new cars, that, the prototypes were coming from England, and he would then um, redesign them for Australian conditions. So um, they'd take them out on test drives, and particularly he'd be involved in suspensions mm-hmm. and the other one he used to love playing with was the carbies to hold them up, make them run a lot better and a lot faster. So uh, that was his job. But then he started up his own manufacturing business and um, left, left BMC right. and you know, started up his own business. Yeah. So uh, he's to blame for all those expensive muscle cars that are still hanging around, is he? Uh, actually, I'll tell you one of them he's to blame for, the the, the Mini Cougress. Uh-huh. That was called the, um, when it's first brought out, um, the Mini Miner, and it, it went nowhere. And no, um, it was actually a dud. And then what my father used to do was, You'd be involved in entering the cars into those days the uh, Bathurst 500, now the Hardy Toroda yep, 1000, yep. or whatever they call it. Mm. And so he, he was one who actually hotted them up, new suspension, new carburetors, and also the GT stripe on it, because, you know, GT stripes yep, make yep. things go so much faster. Oh, well, they do, they do. But, oh, oh, they do, yeah, exactly. Most important thing. <laughs> but but he, he designed the game plan. He knew that... The, um, because of the way he, he set up the suspension and 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 the torque, mm. these little cars could just move up, go up the hill really quickly. So they could go up the hill and overtake all the all, all the big ones. Mm. Mm. But when it came to Conrod Straight, of course they didn't. You know, these little things couldn't um, didn't have the power of V eight. But because they're so small, you know. What he told the drivers to do as soon as the, the big cars overtook, then to go right up the backside and use the backdraft to pull them along. 
And so when people were watching the race, they could see the little cars overtake the big ones when they went up the hill. And then when they went on Conroy Strait, these little cars were screaming right up the arse of the big ones. <laughs> so everybody wanted a um, Mini Cooper S after that, every kid, you know, because that was a race car. And then the Mini from there became the really cool, <laughs> um, you know, car of the 60s, the icon of the 60s. That's right. It went from failure to, oh, this is the car we've got to get. Well, that's right, and every university student would be part of, uh, you know, how many people can you fit into a mini competition that would be yeah. carrying around all the universities, I remember, in the early 70s. Now, did you go, to, I assume you went to high school in Sydney? Yeah, I did. And what was that like? Well, the one I went to, if you want to know, is called Sydney Grammar School, mm-hmm. and um, I got kicked out. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, uh, 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 Kelly. Oh, well, I, I, don't I don't think we're going to. Con- I don't think we'll continue with this interview, <laughs> Kelly. This man's been expelled from Sydney Ga- Grammar School. I mean, that, that, that's that's hard to take. Now, can I ask I you? Nobody listens to this program, so you can tell us why you were expelled if you want to. Okay, because <laughs> it was the 1960s, and there's things like the Vietnam War on, mm. and. Uh, there's people like myself who were well, in um, rock bands and I wanted to grow my hair long and at Sydney Grammar you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And then um, you weren't allowed to go to moratoriums and demonstrations, good Sydney Grammar boys. And then when someone like myself started bringing Trotskyite material to Sydney Grammar and tried to radicalise it, mm-hmm. it was not considered um, good for There's a group of us, by the way. That, that was the worst thing. Yes, you know, there's, there's yes. a whole group of us. So we were, um, you know, a, yeah. a threat to the establishment. So our education was better yes. at uh, yes. other schools. <laughs> right. Yeah, I remember the, the height. I remember when I was involved in the moratorium marches, the height of, uh, of uh, being a rebel was one of the public school boys or girls wearing their school uniform in the march because the cameras would hone in on them and on the evening news you'd see you know, Sydney grammar boys, you know, whatever, or, or Melbourne grammar or whatever, you know. That was yeah. that was the height of embarrassment for these private schools. Uh, yeah. Yes, we didn't go over well. When we, when we, instead of being at school, we were um, yeah. out marching in our um, yeah. official uniform, establishment yeah. uniforms. So Not I, the done thing. No, I assume when you were expelled, uh, your parents were very proud of you because of their experience in the Sorbonne in the fifties. Uh, uh, well, 50s. my mother was my mother was actually arrested um, <laughs> with Bobby Lim and some of the other people. Um, you know, so, um, you know, how can you say? My mother was in all the moratoriums at the same time. So yes. yeah, um, yeah, and. I was actually the first student not to do cadets. It was compulsory. Right. And they, they tried to get me, and I'm, I'm a chronic asthmatic, and they actually, and, and plus I'd actually had a serious um, foot injury as well, and they tried to, they actually forged my uh, health certificates to get me in because every kid had to do cadets. And so my 
my mother threatened to go to the media over this and kick a big stink. There'd already been one kid who'd been expelled um, the year before. And so they quietly allowed me to be the first official student in the history of the school not to to do cadets. Mm. And that actually, that's probably another bad influence of me. Another other um, parents followed and other, other kids stopped being cadets. And um, we were part of the peace movement instead. Yes. Have you uh, ever thought of going to a Sydney Grammar Boys reunion? Um, actually, ironically, the answer is yes. Um, I do actually have a few friends at Sydney Grammar, and, mm. um, and they're all the the bad boys. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> so um, one day I, I probably will. Well, you know, well, 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 enough of us are still alive. It'll be good. I'm in contact with with, with, with some of them now because, um, how can you say, we we were the bad boys yeah. at the time, and um, in many ways we're still much much the same like-minded people right. in what we've done, our views, you know. So, yeah, the answer is yes, yeah, some of them. It's interesting. I uh, I graduated from uh, Queensland University. I think it was 1975 uh, with a medical degree, and uh, I uh, want to go to my 50th reunion just to see how all the nerds that I, were, that I studied with, how they've all turned out. Hopefully half of them are dead, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> It's not yeah, a nice no. thing. It's not a nice thing to say, but you know, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, medical school in the seventies. Now, getting back to you, so what did they do with you? Your parents once you're expelled, they send you to. Oh well, they put me. There was a, a new sort of free school called Australian International Independent School, mm-hmm. and that was really interesting. I didn't have to wear uniforms and. And what was really nice, we you know, boys and girls instead of all boys, and it it was good, but it was still really middle class and rich little middle class kids. And um, oh, I hadn't said by this stage. You know, I said my father started his own business. Well, that meant we were as poor as. And, we were poor and working class in those days. Mm. You know, um, he wasn't a very successful business. And, right. and also, you know, we were pretty radical in those days too. Um, my mother in those days was actually secretary of the Gurindji campaign, the whole land. Really? Yeah. So What's your mum's first name? Jean. And it's loyal you. Right. And, and she was with Frank Hardy and, and all the people involved. So our house was actually a really radical house mm-hmm. for, for, for the time. And, um, you know, people like Fred Hollows and others were family friends. And I suppose the other side of my house is the family motto of work hard, play hard. Right. And so, you know, in, in North Shore Sydney, we were considered to be, you know, very, very dysfunctional. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a badge of honour. Uh, I regard it as a badge of honour, and I actually think it was a privilege, the type of people, you know, with playwrights and authors and, and, 
and radical activists and, you know, some of, you know, you go back in history and uh, some of the leading lights of social change. Yes. And to me, you know, it, it, it's a privilege. But I found this new school with, you know, rich little kids um, and I was too radical for them. I didn't fit in. So I actually just... Uh, uh, one level, you know, I, I was really good at school. You know, I was up there, um, you know, in those days, first level maths, first level physics. You know, I, academically, I was really good. No trouble about it. But socially, I did not fit in with these people. And mm. I was just desperately unhappy. So I left. And um, cut a long short, story short, I hitchhiked up to where I live now, far north Queensland, and became part of the, 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 the old Coranda commune. Hang on, hang on, and hang for on. The first hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm a bit confused here. Now, how old were you when you went on this oh, other 17. Seventeen. Seventeen. Seventeen, okay. 1971. Right. I want to actually talk about it. Um, Fifty years ago, this month, instead of finishing my last year at high school, I basically said, stuff it, and came up and became, and, and essentially became a hippie in the old commune in, in Coranda, yep. and there, for the first time, I found people who were like me, who had similar ideas, similar social ideas, similar, um, you know, uh, it, I, you know, I fitted in for the first time, which is really important. You know, and, um, you know, that is, I suppose, in many ways what defined me. And then the, the other part of that was, you know, how I said I was very much influenced by forests, there's tropical rainforests up here I just loved, and, and, and these wilderness areas. And the other one for me is tropical fruits and is also 50 years ago, actually in May, um, 50 years ago in May, I remember walking through barefoot through this, um, basically through this rainforest, through this you know, two-wheel pathway, and coming out to this clearing of one of the first organic farms, uh, tropical organic farms in Australia, and walking out, and here you've got a massive, you know, all these flowers, exotic flowers, exotic vegetables, tropical fruits, you know, jackfruits, bananas, um, papayas, you know, and custard apples, you name it, you know, and you're just seeing this incredible biodiversity of um, fruit crops and vegetable crops and flowers and thinking of just walked into the Garden of Eden. Mm. And that, in many ways, is the defining moment of my life. I said, that is what I, I want to do. Let's go back a step. Look, this is obviously before the internet. What mm. made you kind of go to Coranda? You know, you're 17, you're oh, in okay. Sydney. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, what, 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 what would happen was that I would, um, when I was at the international school, there was one, one um, good friend of mine, and her parents had a little caravan park um, near Byron Bay. And so school holidays, we, we would hitch up to Byron and go, you know, go surfing and do all the things at Byron. And I would, you know, hear about, and particularly as we were hitchhiking up and down, meet other people, and they'd 
they tell me about the Coranda Commune in, 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 in uh, far north Queensland. Mm. And it just sounded to me like um, somewhere I had to go to, you know, just so different, you know, so appealing. And so, yeah, that, that, mm. that's how I got there. I think most people listening. Why I got there. Yeah, I think most uh, younger people listening to you today would actually be on the ground in foamy at the mouth, thinking, "How could a sixteen-year-old and a seventeen-year-old hitchhike up and down the east coast in these days of helicopter parents who pick up their sixteen-year-olds in their four-wheel drives at their private schools?" Yeah. Well. No, no, that, oh, look, our parents were concerned about us. Like, like, they did actually drive us out to the highway and dropped us off. And said, See you when you get back. <laughs> they did show them they They were frightened you'd be run over in Sydney, but once you got into the open highway, so it was all yeah, right. Yeah, everything's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you didn't, have, you didn't have mobile phones, and if you're lucky, you had change to find a public phone booth. Look, yeah, exactly. I was in the same situation. I used to hitchhike everywhere as a seventeen or eighteen year old, you know, or even, and it, no, it was normal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Ivan Malat, eat your heart out. <laughs> yeah, I know. Unfortunately, there's a few things like that. Yeah. Actually, in the seventies, one one for us. Um, later, I was actually driving because I, you know, um, you know, as I got older, I actually owned an old second-hand car, as we did. And there used to be what we called the Rocky Mackay Horror Stretch of the highway. Take a whole day to get up and down it. And there, there were murders. um, A whole lot. And uh, we were worried about that. So I I used to actually keep um, a big bayonet in the back of my car, just in case in those days. Yeah, well, I used to carry a shorn-off rifle, but that's a different story. (laughs) But you're right. But when you look at the murder statistics, everybody talks about the 21st century in Australia being a violent century. There were more murders in the 1970s per head of population, and many of them occurred on the road. And anybody who hitchhikes has got stories, you know, of being picked up by unsavoury characters and escaping through the skin of their teeth. But it was just the risk you took, you know? Yeah, actually, one time that that is the truth. Um, We we went to try to pick up one of my girlfriends and I, and. hitchhiking back from Cairns to Sydney, also in the 70s, and that's the same thing. Basically, I managed to fight him off. He got to stop, and we, we, we ran into the bush. But yeah. uh, that, that was a lucky escape. And then you get really worried about the next truck stops <laughs> and, and what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We did, you know, the truth is, the other side of it is, you know, we did have close calls, all of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, we, and there are others that, No, no, they didn't at all. They were just, you know, hippies, you know. They, they didn't really care one way or another. You got lost. Now, when you got to Karanga, you said this is this was the most defining moment of, uh, of your life. So what have you done since? Okay, well, well, let, let's talk about... I, I was involved in setting up with a group of people. But really, I started with what's called the exotic um, rare food industry. And... Hang on, hang on, hang on. You set up the exotic rare fruit industry. How does one, yeah, well, how does one go about doing such a I, I huge task? I to say it. You know, I 
when I went on this particular first organic farm, I ended up then working on an, another pioneering one, and this guy had all these exotic fruits. But used to tell me about um, the really exotic ones like rambutans, durians, mangosteens in, in, in Southeast Asia, and we couldn't get them. And there's a couple of trees and research stations and stuff. And in the end, I realised the only way would ever get them to Australia, I'd have to go out and get them. And everybody would say, you can't do that. You know, quarantine won't let you bring them into Australia. Mm-hmm. So I went and saw the quarantine people and found out, actually, it's not impossible to bring them in. It's just very difficult. Now, very difficult is solvable. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to raise the money and do it all, but in the end... You know, I was the first person to actually go over to Southeast Asia and send back the first quantities of seeds of these plants to start the industry. Now, once I'd done it... Now, let, let's go... So that just was possible, one, Yeah, one step backwards. You went to... How long were you in Southeast Asia and, and what did you think? Obviously, this is the first um, time you've been overseas. I was overseas. by then mm-hmm. and I, I went over in November and started sending back first amounts of them to Australia um, had a colleague back in Australia who um, set up a nursery and grew them all out while I, I went to Southeast Asia and, and collected them to mm. bring them back to Australia. So I did the first major collection of rare exotic tropical fruits that we did not have in Australia. And how long? Well, what happened with me when I, you know, in those days, how hard it was to get out of Australia? Yes. So, Andre, you said it's, uh, it was very hard getting into Southeast Asia, but you got there and you got all these exotic seeds. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, but, was it hard getting seeds there? Or people think you're a bit strange, this young bloke, 22-year-old, 19-year-old, no, 22-year-old, you know, wandering around looking for seeds? Oh, yeah, they, they thought I was a bit strange. <laughs> uh, they, actually, I, I actually ended up, learning Indonesian and explaining why, um, they, they thought it was a bit crazy. I'd buy the fruit and um, just want the seeds. <laughs> they let them eat it. But, uh, that, anyway, uh, and then, of course, there was all the issues in those days, you know, the way I had to package it and then um, clear it through... Um, their immigration and, and systems like that now are very, very suspicious about, you know, is this what I'm really sending and all those sorts of issues because, um, you know, it's not something people did every day. No, it was the height and, of the Sahara era, so obviously <laughs> viewed yeah, suspicious. And, and you can imagine, too, 1975 and, and I've got hair halfway down my back and a long beard, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, that that goes over well in Asia <laughs> in those days. Yeah. Particularly in those days, Singapore wouldn't let you in. That's yeah. right, or execute you one or the other. So, yeah, yeah. So when you got the seeds back, when you came back to Australia, uh, were you involved in the initial planting, or have they been planted before you got back? Uh, they're still in pots. Actually, I didn't get back for another year. A year? More than that. Um, just to explain, when... You know, in those days, it wasn't that... It's not like now where you go overseas and you come back, you know, for, for a two-week holiday or whatever. It took... There's a huge effort to get the money together to get out. Mm. And I realised as soon as I got out, 
I, it took me so long to get out. I'm not going back quickly. And I made a decision to actually go overland to Europe. Um, um. And so I collected all the way up to northern Thailand. And when I was in northern Thailand, I met my wife, who's a, a Melbourne girl. She just finished doing uni at Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, we ended up doing the, you know, in those days we called the overland trip where we, you know, you go through Kathmandu and India and um, Afghanistan, Kabul and, and Iran, Turkey and, you know, through Europe. I wanted to see my rallies in Switzerland and then to London in those days and, and back. Yeah. And I also, on the way back, also did more collecting in Asia of, of, of um, fruit seeds. Mm. And what happened then, you know, when I got back, everybody wanted them. You know, this mm. is the only collection, first time they've ever been done. So I, I my mean, Andre, wife, and I... Yeah, was, Andre, I'm just going to butt in here because I'm, yeah. I'm impressed. Usually when uh, people go overseas, they collect a partner and maybe they collect some debts, but you collected seeds and a partner. <laughs> You're a yeah. superhero in my eyes. And not only that, but, you know, we're, we're, we're still together. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's neither here or there, but the fact is that you collected both. You know, that's yeah. extraordinary. You know, congratulations. <laughs> you didn't do too badly. So, yeah, you did, very, you yeah, did very well. <laughs> yeah, it's what you call a successful trip. Yes. But anyway, we, we got back and everybody wanted them. I, I just really collected them for myself. We, we had a, a hundred acres of land in Coranda by that stage and I wanted to plant out my own exotic fruit um, um, orchard and, you know, just give a few trees to a few friends. But everybody wanted them. So Julie and I, we got married, used all our wedding present money <laughs> for air tickets and went straight back to uh, Asia and did a massive collection this time and and sent back thousands of seeds and was involved in setting up the first um, or, um, first nursery for exotic tropical fruits with a, with a partner who's mm-hmm. still a good friend now. And that, that really was the start of the industry because once we'd shown it was possible... You know, you open the floodgates and everybody else starts going all around the world, bringing in um, different um, new species of fruits. And since that time, there's over 400 new species of tropical fruits in Australia as a result of this. Mm. Now, now, Andre, are you going to be buried or cremated? Have you made up your mind yet? Uh, Yeah, cremated. Oh, that's no good. Are you going to have a little headstone somewhere? No, actually, sorry. I haven't made up my mind. No, 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 no. sorry. I've decided actually I'm going to be buried and have a tree planted on top oh, of me. That's nice. And yeah. so I can I, I can turn into a fruit tree yeah. and do something useful when I'm dead. Yeah, because, look, I, I had this thought, you know, I, I, I kind of think laterally, and I was thinking America had Johnny Appleseed. We've got Andre mm. Exotic Seed, and wouldn't it be nice <laughs> to put that on your uh, headstone, you know? Part of me was thinking, I just think I'd be, I like the Indian idea of um, you get cremated and then you, you throw your ashes 
um, in the snows of the Himalayas, mm. and then when, when 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 spring comes and it melts, and you go down, you know, into the creeks and rivers, into the Ganges, mm. and eventually out into the Indian Ocean, and you become part of the mm. bigger thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's a that's a nice analogy, but 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 now I've thought no, I, I don't want to put out greenhouse gases when I'm dead and contribute to climate change. So why not just recycle myself into a fruit tree? Well, I agree, but I think we should... Do something useful. We should hang a sign on it, you know. Andre, exotic seed. You know? <laughs> exactly. Please. I mean, please we, we all, we all do something in our lives that's worthwhile, and uh, obviously that's something you've done. Now, how have things changed up at Karanda in the last few decades? Is it, it's not the same anymore, is it? No, I, I don't live there. Um, look, it's, you know, it's like all things, the Karanda that we were the hippies in, in, in the 1970s became, you know, it, it's, it's a major tourist town. Now, it's still a really lovely place and, um, you know, very, very desirable place to live. But I, I actually live in Daintree now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I actually love it here because it's a better climate along the coast. Um, you know, uh, we're... I border one of the, the most valuable rainforests on the planet, which I love. It's, you know, we've got crocodiles in, in the river just down, you know, not too far from us, big pythons, cassowaries. You know, it, it's really nice to, to live on the edge of a wilderness. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I've got my orchard of tropical fruit trees as well. What's in your orchard? What are you growing currently? Well, well the, the main... Uh, look, I, I've got a huge collection of tropical plants, hundreds of, of, of different species and varieties. But in terms of commercial um, uh, uh, lychees, rambutan, and then star apples, mangosteens, and durian, that, they're the main five. And then uh, at least a hundred other varieties of fruits. I've got one of the largest collections of bamboos actually in the world, tropical bamboos. I've got... The other one I specialise is in uh, water lilies, particularly Australian water lilies, and I've been involved in, in finding new species with that. Mm. Um, so, it's, you know, so on, on that level for me, because I, I love plants, you know, this, this to me is paradise. You know, that vision of when I, 50 years ago, when I walked onto this tropical farm, the... Um, you know, Garden of Eden said, that's what I'm going to do. In the end, that's exactly what we did, and we raised our children on this mm-hmm. farm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So, have they, on have that the level... Kids, have the kids all become accountants as a revolt against your uh, lifestyle? Uh, actually, I'm very proud of my my boys. One, one is yes. an author. Yep. Actually, they both went to school, uh, uni in Brisbane. Right. And so, one QUT and, and did... Um, Creative industries. He's a really good writer, and mm. he writes um, part time for the Chaser, by the way. So, oh, right. And yeah. so, you know, he's got a a really good grasp on um, on reality to, to write for the Chaser. Which I think <laughs> is, you know, really good. Proud of him. And 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 my other son, um, he, he, he's um, in IT, right. and really good at. Uh, once again, the, the creative side of it. Both of them are very creative mm. and doing their own things. This is what you want 
you want your children to do. Yeah, look, 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 look. Looks like one's taken after your grandfather, and the other one's taken after you. I mean, yeah, uh, uh, well, after you, sorry, your father, and one's taken after you. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly right. It's interesting that way. Yeah. yeah. Um. One. One. Yes, yeah, like me. I. Um. Well. Actually, to a degree, both of them. Um. Have taken up. And one is because you know I publish books and I write articles and. Mm. And so um, my oldest son has taken up to that side of it. But I was actually involved in IT. So my other side is as a musician. And right. in, in the 80s, very much part of the new wave, you know, I was involved in synthesizers among the first people to start using computers for, um, <clears throat> you know, for recording and, and, and for making videos was amongst the first people to actually start using PCs for that, programming it. And, you know, now it's all, you know, no one, you know, now, now it's all normal, but in those days mm-hmm. we were working with 8-bit systems. So that was another side of me. I actually do love the technology and love, mm-hmm. love it, and, and I was good at it. And using it creatively for video clips and to music. So, so can anybody use a search engine to uh, look at some of these things? Have some of them survived? Uh, not really. You know, I'm t- we're talking 1980s right. and there's no internet and, uh, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, I've probably got stuff on old tapes that yeah. exists up here and rotted away. And, but, you know, I can say, I... I I've always, like I said, in the 60s, I was playing in bands, always mm. playing bands, still playing mm. bands. Mm. I, you know, I love music. That's my uh, other side of my life. And I just loved using the technology for recording and, um, you know, and, and for videos. And I actually did go back to uni. Like I said, I left at 17, but in my 30s, I, I went back as a mature age student to do a degree in communication at the University of technology in Sydney, and I actually majored in, um, in um, video making and, um, you know, social political theory and stuff, because I was, in those days I was actually getting, um, I was actually getting work doing soundtracks on films, and mm-hmm. I was really interested in that as a, as a medium, as an expressive medium. Right. So... How much work does it take to maintain a paradise? I mean, I do a bit of farming myself, and it's not easy. Uh, well, particularly as we start to get to our vintage, yes. um, it, it, it's a lot of work. Um, and I've actually got a son of my uh, next-door neighbour's son. Um, now he, 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 he wants to take over the farm as a share farmer. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy for that because, you know, the days of me, you know, being all day on chainsaws, pruning trees, all that sort of stuff, all day on tractors are over. You know, I I just don't have the stamina. I can do a few hours, but it's a job for younger men. And, and, and you know, you see it's the reason why, you know, so many people start retiring in their 60s. We really start to feel it, you know, I'm better potting, potting around the garden and um, better using my time um, in front of computers, writing, 
Right. So, so what, what areas are you uh, concentrating on with your writings and who are you trying okay, to influence? Well, all right. Um, my current gig is I'm the international director of an, of an international organisation called Regeneration International. We're, we're registered in the United States, but we have uh, um, around 350 partner organisations in uh, around 70 countries on, on every continent. And we are involved in regenerative agriculture uh, on a whole range of levels, but particularly with changing agriculture at the moment, which is one of the major contributors to climate change and turning into a system that takes the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis and puts it, stores it in the soil, a soil organic matter. And we have the, the information on the systems that we, we could by scaling this up, take out all the anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere, store them into the soil, and actually reverse climate change. Is there much interest in Australia, especially North, yeah. North, Queen, North, North Australia? Um, look, in Australia and worldwide, um, this government now has actually announced the whole regenerative farming um, program and be putting money into it. Myself and others would have been the pioneers of this and lobbying it not just in lobbying it for it not just in Australia, myself globally, in the United Nations and all around the world. And we've got lots of countries now are involved in it. And you know, Joe Biden for instance now has got a program they're looking at putting um, about $40 billion into it now, US, uh, Europe, Norway, um, all around the world now. It's a serious uh, issue. And there is a whole United Nations program on it called 4 for 1000 that was put out by the, the French government uh, in uh, 2015 at the Climate Change um, Summit there when they were hosting it, and the French Agriculture Minister, Stéphane Lafolle, put this forward and this is based on that you could get, uh, you know, basically increase the soil organic matter, soil carbon, by 4,000, four, four you know, four parts per thousand in the soil each year, you could basically make the world greenhouse gas neutral. Mm. So that was signed by about 30 countries. And I'm actually a, a signatory of that document because in those days I was actually the international president of the organic industry in those days. Mm. If, if people are interested, and they should be interested, um, is there any sites you can direct them to? Yeah, um, our organisation is Regeneration International and that is www regeneration international one word dot org right do um, you think we can actually reverse the titanic yeah look um, the answer is yes and we, we have the data because I think one of the big problems at the moment it does look like well yeah what's the point of reversing the titanic sinking and and you a lot of people give up hope, 
and really think, you know, all the news is bad, bad, bad. But the fact is, you know, some of the data we've got, we, we could do it relatively quickly. Like one, one of the systems that we know of, <coughs> we've been, we're actually, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, something in my throat. One of the systems that we, this is Regeneration International, we've been involved in in Mexico now, we've just had um, scientists looking at it and getting the data on it and it's using agave, which is that, um, you know, it's like giant blue aloe vera plant, and um, using these in semi-arid areas. And we worked out, you know, if we could just scale it up to 5% of the agricultural systems in these semi-arid areas around the world, mm-hmm. that system alone would um, take out all the world's um, greenhouse gases. Just that. And we're talking about a 5% scaling up. Mm. But, you know, in Australia we're leaders, and actually in Victoria, in Gippsland, um, there's a guy probably worth getting on to speak to, a farmer called Niels Olsen. And he uses a system where they basically plant crops into pasture instead of ploughing it up. And he's just been paid by the Australian government for sequestering, um, oh, sorry, um, did this year 13 tonnes of carbon dioxide per hectare per mm. year. Mm. And I did the maths on that the other day, and if we scaled that up amongst agricultural systems, that would equal about half of the, the current greenhouse gas output on the planet. Right. And what I'm trying to say is these things are already happening. The federal government is actually paying this guy. He's the first farmer in the world to be paid on a government-regulated system for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil. Right. So we're, we're talking about things that are happening now, happening in Australia now, you know, not things that need to be invented. Yeah. And we're talking about really easy, cheap, you know, all we need to do is educate and scale it up. It is simple, and we could turn around climate change in a decade. Well, it's very hopeful. Obviously, your hope is uh, eternal, as they say. Now, just just to, a few more just boring things. Um, how's your health bearing up? You said you had asthma. Um, is, is it getting worse? Yeah. Okay, that, yeah, no, that, that, that yeah. I, I've always been chronically ill, mm. and... So the answer is, uh, I'm reasonably okay. But as you get older, you know, you get wear and tear. And, and uh, one of the things that did happen to me, I think I mentioned I used to be the international president of the organic industry. That's right, yes. And we had one meeting in Delhi in November 2017 when they had really bad um, air pollution. Yes. And... It's the PM, it's what are called the PM 2.5 particles, really small ones. They go right through your cells and through your nucleus and damage the um, tissues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you get around 45 parts per million, that is regarded as highly hazardous. When we're in Delhi, the average was 450 parts per million. And we got up to one day 950. You know, the World Health Organization yeah. had to draw out new charts. And that ended up collapsing the, the bottom part of my right lung. Mm. So that that knocked me around for quite a few years. But 
I'm actually on the men now, but That's good. probably like all these things, never be perfect. But you know, mm. I'm mm. I'm reasonably good. Right. And my last question is: You've got a tenuous link to 3CR here in Melbourne. What 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 was all that about? Uh, okay, <laughs> very tenuous. Well, firstly, I said I, I married a Melbourne girl. Actually, I lived in Melbourne in 1977 for a little while and uh, had a lot of friends who were involved in the early days of starting up 3CR. Not that I was important enough to be interviewed by 3CR in those days, but <laughs> I. <I'd, laughs> um, not like now, but, <laughs> but, but in the 1980s, you know, I was playing in bands, and actually yeah. in those days I was in Sydney, but I always remember, you know, coming down, we did our Melbourne tour, yeah. you know, Richmond and, yeah. and, and St Kilda and all the famous places, and being interviewed um, on 3CR, yes. and then I used to be the, um, the head of the organic body in, in Australia in, 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 in around you know, 2000, yes. in the 2000s. Same thing again, I, I was famous enough to be interviewed by 3CR, so yes. I've, got a, I've got a big history there. Yeah. Well, Andre, look, I hate to tell you, anybody who's, inter- who's interviewed on Radical Australia isn't famous. That's why we interview them. We can't be bothered interviewing famous people, but you've made a significant contribution. No, no, you've made a significant (laughs) contribution to this country and the world, and it's been a pleasure talking to you, and that's what it is. It's just a chat, but I think uh, it's always good to speak to people who are hopeful that change is not only desirable but possible, and that's the big thing about 3CA, as you know, in all alternative... uh, News outlets, it's about the fact that it is possible because a lot of people have forgotten that change is possible, even huge change like what you're working on. So I wish you, your uh, children, grandchildren, if you've got any, your poor suffering wife and those exotic exotic fruits, all the best for the future. And uh, if you get to 100, give me a call and I'll come to your birthday party. I'll be 104. Oh, great. You could could interview me again. Yeah, I actually interviewed somebody who was 97 last week, and that was an experience and a half. Good old Bohemian Radical who was 97. Oh, how good is that? How good is that? Yeah. So we, we've got something to which, you know, aspire to. Exactly, exactly. Look forward to talking then. <laughs> all the best, and all the best to up everybody up there in North Queensland. Uh, my late yeah, wife used to come from Melbourne. up there. All the best. Oh, okay. You too. They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.